Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. The Bible's story of salvation really begins with Abraham, the father of faith. Abraham grew up in the pagan world of idol worship. Abraham did not begin life as what we might describe as a believer in the one true living God. He grew up in a family, in a household, in a world, in a city, given over to the idolatrous worship of false gods. We're told that he worshiped the gods of his fathers in the land of Mesopotamia. A Jewish tradition tells us, in fact, that Terah, Abraham's father, was a maker of idols. That this was, in fact, his livelihood, that he was a maker of idols. But somehow, in the midst of that world, the voice of the living God broke through to this man that the world now knows as Abraham. And God called Abraham to leave his family, to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to leave the life he had known and set forth on a journey. In the pagan world of ancient religion, their philosophy was cyclical. Their thinking was that Things go around and around and around in a circle, like the seasons, like the cycles of the moon. The chief god of the Chaldeans was the moon god with its cycles. And so the thinking was that things can't really change. Things just repeat over and over and over. That life is a cycle and sometimes... And in fact, too often, a vicious cycle. That kind of thinking is expressed in the strange book of Ecclesiastes. A book that is filled with wisdom, but you have to understand that it's a certain kind of wisdom. Remember, it starts off saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Nothing really matters. I mean, this is a kind of wisdom, but it's not the kind of wisdom that we're ultimately going to find in Jesus Christ. Verse 8 of Ecclesiastes says, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. That is a philosophy of the cycle. That's a philosophy of frustration. That's a, a philosophy that says nothing can really change That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. It just happens over and over and again. What's happened is what does happen and it's what will happen and nothing changes. But with Abraham, something new began. 
God called him out of that world of the vicious cycle where everything just repeats over and over and over. And he says, I want you to break out. I want you to leave this. I want you to go on a journey. I'm going to show you a place. Where is it? Don't worry about it. I'll show it to you later. But I want you to start moving toward it. And when Abraham leaves Ur of the Chaldees because God has called him, he sets forth on a journey that isn't just going to take Abraham to the land of promise. In fact, it's the initiation of a journey that will bring us all the way to Jesus. All the way to Jesus. Abraham's life, a life that sets in motion the full story of salvation, can be described as a long obedience in the same direction. And that's my sermon title for this 38th anniversary of Word of Life Church, a long obedience in the same direction. Now that expression has come into common usage among Christians in America, probably because in 1980, Eugene Peterson published a book under that title, a book on discipleship with the very apt title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. But it's not original with Eugene Peterson. He got it from the same place that I'm borrowing it. And its origin is a hundred years earlier with Frederick Nietzsche, of all people, in his book, Beyond Good and Evil. Now, Nietzsche is one of the most prominent critics of Christianity, a famous atheist. I disagree with him a lot of the time, but a lot of the time he's also brilliant. And Frederick Nietzsche said this, The essential thing in heaven and in earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction that thereby results in the long run in something which makes life worth living. Virtue, art, music, dancing, reason, spirituality, anything whatsoever that is transfiguring, refined, foolish, or divine. Well, right there, Nietzsche's right. He absolutely is right. The essential thing in life is what he's saying. The essential thing in life is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. Not not flitting around, not, I'm going to try this, and now I'll try that, and I'm going to run over here, and then I'm going to do this. It's to make up your mind to move towards something and let your life be characterized as a long obedience in the same direction that thereby results in the long run. In the long run. The subtitle of Eugene Peterson's book on Christian discipleship that he uses Nietzsche's expression for, a long obedience in the same direction. The subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. Oh, this, he wrote this in 1980. It's even worse today. We want it, we want it, we want it, we want it, we want it right now, right now, right now, right now, right now. And then you take all kinds of shortcuts and you never really find the good stuff. The essential thing in life is that there be a long obedience in the same direction, that in the long run, it doesn't happen instantly. It doesn't happen quickly. It might not happen this year. It might not happen this decade. But you start something and you begin to move in that direction that in the long run makes life worth living. 
And it can be in a lot of different areas. Virtue, art, music, dancing, reason, spirituality, anything whatsoever that is transfiguring and refined. Some may call it foolish, but it might be divine. Nietzsche's right. And that's what the Camino de Santiago is. How do you walk the Camino de Santiago Frances? It's a 500-mile walk in one direction for 40 days. It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's, that's one of the photos I took. That's on what we call the Meseda, which is the stretch between Burgos and Lyon, and it looks mostly like that. Some, some pilgrims commit, in my mind, the sin of skipping the Meseda. They're still stuck in an instant society, and they don't want something that's as boring as that. And so they take a bus, and they just fly over it. How long does it take us to walk it? I don't even remember. Ten days. Okay, ten days of that. Ten days. It's a long obedience in the same direction. One of the miracles that works into your soul during the Camino is the simplicity of life. What do you take with you on the Camino? Everything that you can't leave behind. Because you're going to carry it on your back. What do you wear? What you didn't wear yesterday. You wear one outfit, you carry the other, and you just rotate. What do you do? You get up in the morning, what do you do? You walk west. 12 to 14 miles. Just walk west. Just walk west. 12 to 14 mile. One day we had an 18 mile day. Perry was so nervous about that. I, tell her, I said, Perry, we got an 18 mile day coming up. And she was nervous. And then that day she just crushed it. She did great. In 2016, we walked that 500 mile Camino de Santiago from Saint Jean Pied de Port France to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. And we walked it in pain. We had pain. I had pretty much pain yeah, most, of the, most of the way. And, um, you know, we thought about that. Why so much pain? I think because that's what we needed to let go of. We had a lot of pain in us. We had about 12 years of pain. And we went on this Camino, and what happened is that pain all drained out through our feet <laughs> into the Camino, and we left it there. It hurt coming out. It came out our feet. But when we came back, it didn't hurt anymore. And it didn't hurt. And so we walked it this time, and it didn't hurt at all. Perry got zero blister. I got one little blister, one little. It was no big deal. It was just one. It was like, it was like a joke. So you call yourself a blister. You should be ashamed to call yourself a blister. <laughs> I did twist my ankle at one point, but it was no big deal. You know, you just, I can say I walked without pain. Because I think this Camino, we weren't there to lose something, to, to get rid of something. 2016, we were there to get rid of the pain that was in us. This time we were there, at least I was there, I won't speak for Perry, I was there to dedicate something, to dedicate a next stage of life. Turn 60, thinking in 15-year increments, because my life seems to work out that way. 60 to 75, what am I going to do? I'm going to dedicate myself to something. And I had 40 days to think and pray about it. And I know what it is. I know that I'm supposed to dedicate myself to helping people hold on to their Christian faith in a secular age. Because there's a lot of pressure for people to let go. 
And so there's a book, there's a book that's in me. It's a book in me. What can we do when everything's on fire? Faith in an age of unbelief. It'll take a while, it'll take a year to write that, but, um, or something like that. But that's, that's, that brings you up to date a little bit on our Camino. But for 45 years, I've sought to live a life of faith. And what is faith? Faith is a long obedience in the same direction. I mean, you set out and you say, I'm going I'm to walk this thing. Whether it's the Camino, whether it's the Christian life, whether you're going to master some skill in your life, I'm going to walk this road. And then it gets hard. And then you get blisters. And then the weather's bad. We had one day. We, we, we walked without much rain for the first 30 days and the last not, or 31 days. The last nine days it rained every day. And one day it just, it just poured. All day. I think it was a 14-mile day. We just walked all day. 16, 16, it was a 16, Ryan. 16. And it was a cold rain. It's like, you know, it's like 40 degrees and just raining. And what do you do? You just put your head down. And there's no conversation. Nobody talk. All the pilgrims were talking about that day days later. Remember that day? They're, oh, yeah. What would you do? Just, you just put your head down and you just go. You didn't like it. You don't talk. There's no conversation. You're freezing, but you just keep. That's, that's, the light. that's what faith is like. Yeah, some days it's all shiny and sunny and wonderful and you're walking with friends and having conversations. Some days it just rains all day long and you put your head down and you keep going. That's faith. That's how it works. You just keep going. You know, oh, it's raining out. I guess I can't be a Christian anymore. <laughs> no, you keep going. You walk through it. And we did see a rainbow that day, by the way. Not that day. Not that day. That day just rained. But there was, the next day there was a rainbow. That's what faith is. Faith is the orientation of the soul toward God. And a life of faith is one that keeps moving toward God. This is Abraham. You, have the, you know, the Bible is a big story. And it starts out with Adam and Eve. And theirs was a quick disobedience. It was not a long obedience in the same way. It was a quick disobedience. And they're driven out to the east. Out of paradise. Out of Eden. Out of the garden. To the east. It's symbolic. Don't, don't make anything other than, other than it's the literary symbol in the stories it's told. That's a move away from God. And they're driven out to the east. And they have two sons. And Cain kills Abel. Cain kills Abel. And what does he do? He moves east. They're going further east. Really getting far away from God. Move east. East of Eden into the land of Nod. And builds the first city. Built upon the slain blood of his brother. And... Uh, and then, and then there's a flood trying to stem this tide of violence, but it doesn't work. And after the flood, humanity, what do they do? They move further east into the land of Shinar, and they build the Tower of Babel and rebellion to God. Everything's moving further and further and further away from God, east, 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 until you get to the story of Abraham, and Abraham is the first westward movement in the Bible. And he, he, he is called to leave Ur, the Chaldees, the family and the people and the city that he's known all of his life and move in a new direction. Nobody's ever gone that direction. And he's going to start moving that direction. West, towards a promise, towards a promised land. We're told that he was seeking for a city whose architect was God. Not Cain, not the way of the world. He's looking for something that doesn't yet exist, but he's going to move in that direction. And his life becomes a long obedience in the same direction. And this is the Bible. The Bible takes us on a long journey to get to Jesus. 
This Bible right here, this edition, has 1,207 pages. You don't get to Jesus until page 939. What kind of book, what kind of book, a 1,200-page book doesn't introduce the protagonist, the main character of the story, until page 939? But that's the Bible. So what do you do if you start up with the Bible? You just got to keep reading. You're going to have to go through Leviticus, and there's some weird stuff there. You're going to have to go through Joshua, and there's a lot of bloodshed there. You're going to have to go through Kings, and there's a lot of crazy people there. What do you do? You just keep going. You just keep going. Don't, st- don't settle there. Don't stomp there. Don't get in Ecclesiastes and just say, well, I'm going to stay right here. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all vanity. Don't stop there. Keep going until you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and find the hero of the story. That's the way the Bible works. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And then once you find Jesus, you have to keep walking with Jesus for a lifetime. We're going to baptize some people today. I will ask them two questions. Question number one, do you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? And I give them the answer. The answer is yes. And the second question is, are you going to follow him all the days of your life? And the answer also is yes. And that's the formal initiation of the Christian faith. You confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you understand it? No, I don't fully understand it yet. But I confess it, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you going to follow him all the days of your life? Yes, I am. My life is going to be a long obedience in the same direction. The essential thing in life is that there be a long obedience obedience in the same direction that in the long run it leads to to a life worth living faith is committing your life to something marriage is an act of faith I don't preach on marriage enough I know that I'll preach a little bit right now though marriage is an act of faith As Stanley Hirewall says, you always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person. You know, there's this idea, well, I've got to find my soulmate and then marry him. No, you marry somebody and make them your soulmate. That's how that works. That's how that works. You always marry the wrong person. What does that mean? It means, well, it doesn't matter if you have an arranged marriage where you only meet the partner the day of the wedding or it's been somebody you've been dating for a decade. They always turn out to be the wrong person. What do you do? You say, my marriage is a commitment that's going to be a long obedience in the same direction, and I'm going to be the right person for them. And then over time, you end up having what people would call soulmate. You end up finding out, I married the wrong person, but I end up marrying my best friend. Because it's something that you do. That's, that's how that works. Now, if you don't understand that, then you're setting yourself up for a lot of pain. Marriage is a long obedience in the same direction. It's an act of faith. Vocations work that way. I mean, there are people that are called. They just have a call, and, and there's nothing to support that call. There's nothing to encourage that call, but they, but they just know that they can't quit. They've got to keep going. I mean, Van Gogh never sold a painting for crying out loud. What are you? I'm a painter. How many of you sold? Zero. How many of you painted? Oh, I got stacks of them. How many of you sold? Zero. How are you making your living? Yeah, my brother kind of takes care of me a little bit. 
That's crazy. Now you can't buy one for $100 million. But he just said, nobody wants my paintings, but I'm going to paint them anyway. So Van Gogh keeps painting, and Melville keeps writing. Herman Melville wrote what might be the greatest book in American literary history, Moby Dick. And nobody liked it, and they didn't sell very much, and he died before he knew that he'd written a masterpiece. Or maybe he knew, but he died before anybody else knew that he'd written a masterpiece, but he just kept writing anyway. So Van Gogh keeps painting, and Melville keeps writing, and Abraham keeps believing. He just keeps believing that, it, that something, God is going to bring out something through him and Sarah. And they're too old to have kids, but they believe anyway. It's absurd. And it's also the story of salvation. So today is the 38th anniversary of Word of Life Church. On that first Sunday in November of 1981, I preached a sermon entitled God's Mighty Revivals. I looked at the notes yesterday. And I talked about how I believed that God was going to do something great with this church. And by faith, we obeyed the call for seven years before we saw any evidence that it would actually work. For seven years. I heard a story, Perry knows what I'm talking about, about this group of people that are going to start a church, and they started a church, and they like worked on it for like six months, and it wasn't going very well, and then they, they quit, and then they're all wounded. And what, six months? It didn't work for us for seven years. There was seven years, and there was no evidence that it was actually going to work. We were under 100 people for seven years. We were under, I say, that's, that's, I say it that way because I'm still insecure. We were under 50 for seven years. I remember I, I said, okay, I'm going to believe God. And we're going to get more people. And I made a chart. And I hung it in my little office there on 11th Street. And I would, you know, count the people. I just did it myself, you know. It was easy enough to do. There wasn't very many, you know. I'd be up there worshiping going, one, two, three, four, five. And I'd count them. Hallelujah. And I'd write it down. I'd go in and I'd write it down. I'd put it on my little chart. 27. And the next Sunday, 24. Next Sunday, 31. Next Sunday, 40. Next Sunday, 19. Next Sunday, 38. Next Sunday, 51. It was Easter. Next Sunday, 27. I did it for a whole year. And the thing just was... And I was sitting in my study one day and I looked at that thing and I just went, shut up. I don't have to listen to you. I'm taking you down. Got rid of it. And then I started worshiping. This is the honest truth. I started worshiping with my eyes tied shut. No more counting people. Just worship with my eyes tied shut. That went on for seven years. The essential thing is that there be a long obedience in the same direction. But it's absurd. It's absurd. Why didn't I quit? I don't know. Just felt like I couldn't. It was ridiculous. It's absurd. I know, I know everybody felt embarrassed for me. Poor guy. Just doesn't know when to give it up. Somebody needs to tell him. Maybe we should stage an intervention. 
Brian, you know, if it hadn't happened by now, it's just not going to happen. It's absurd. And it is absurd, but it's also faith. Now, does that mean the secret to success is to stick with something for seven years? No, there is no secret. I'm not, I'm not prescribing something. All I know is it's my story. And what I know is what looked absurd really was faith. Faith is committing your life to something and living it out as a long obedience in the same direction. And faith is committing your life to Jesus and saying, I'm going to stay in a long obedience in the same direction moving toward Jesus. So I want to say a few things about this phenomenon that in certain circles, not everybody's in those circles, but then in certain circles is getting a lot of traction. People talk about deconstruction. It's where they're rethinking their faith and all that. I get that. I understand that. I also want to understand what deconstruction really is. I mean, I've read Jacques Derrida. I understand deconstruction theory. And it's not my favorite term. I like to talk about uh, reconstruction or renovation or restoration. Water turned to wine. I like that better. Because you can't deconstruct forever and have anything left. You can always deconstruct. I can deconstruct anything. You bring it to me, I'll deconstruct it. I mean, it, it's, it's not hard to deconstruct a thing. Whether it's, whether it's an item or whether it's an ism or whether it's a philosophy or a theology, I can deconstruct anything. The problem is, if all you ever do is deconstruct, all you have is a pile of rubble. And then you're left with just some sort of nihilism where you don't believe anything. So if what is meant, though, by deconstruction is a kind of course correction in our lifelong faith obedience to Jesus, well, yes and amen, of course. Such course corrections are necessary and usually begin in some kind of doubt. Amen. But if deconstruction is an abandonment of faith, in the form of a decision to believe in something or nothing over and against Jesus, this is but a sad capitulation to unbelief, which is the zeitgeist of our age. In order to continue with the long obedience in the same direction of following Jesus, of course I've had to make some course corrections over the years. I mean, if you could, maybe put up that... that, that photo again from the Camino. This is, uh, uh, the photo from the Camino is in the Meseta, and everything's pretty just straight. It's just right down, the, right down the line. But that isn't always the way it is. I mean, in life, I've, I've more or less zigzagged my way to follow Jesus. Because you're going a little bit too far right, and you're a little too far left, and then a little back over there, right? Oh, too far right. And, but you're making corrections because you need to. So sometimes it looks like that, but that can be deceptive. It isn't always like that. Ten of the 40 days might have been like that. But other days, it's zigzagging. You're zigzagging. You're zigzagging. And so that's the way that I've had to do it. I've discovered that faith demands that you sometimes doubt your certitude. Say that again. Faith demands that sometimes you doubt your own certitude. That's the course correction. Because your own certitude can just take, begin to pull you too far in one direction. You think, I'm beginning to doubt that. The, everybody says this is the right way, but I, my heart is sending off some signals that I'm maybe... And you have to, you have to doubt 
that, that this way is the right way so that you can make, rethink and make a course correction. That's how you maintain a lifelong obedience in the same direction. There are, there are the kinds of doubts that lead us deeper into genuine faith. I'm going to say that again. There are, there, there are kinds of doubts that lead us deeper into genuine faith. Doubt is not antithetical to faith. Unbelief is something different. Faith, unbelief is a decision to say, I will not believe. In the Christian context, I will not believe in Jesus. And there's not much that can be done for that. There you follow the zeitgeist of the age and decide that that's, that's been the influence on you and you've decided. That's what the Bible says, no, that's not right. But doubt is simply, sometimes it's just a process of course correction. I've learned to doubt my own theological certitude from time to time without doubting Jesus. I began to doubt that God was angry, violent, and retributive. And I found out for good reason, because God's not angry, violent, or retributive. But, I, but to make that correction, to come into a better understanding of God, I had to doubt some of my own theological certitude. Because ultimately my faith is not in a theological system, but in Jesus Christ. My faith is not in a certain theological system. My faith is not in Christian conservatism or Christian progressivism. You can have all the isms. My faith is in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to zigzag my way, following him, making course corrections as necessary. So even when I have questions I can't answer, I still believe in Jesus. Because in my heart, I know that Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the Logos, the logic of God. I know that in my heart. I trust the deepest, the deepest intuitions of my heart. Not the passing fancies, but the deepest intuitions. I've learned how to recognize those and I trust them. So I can't prove in the, in the, in the, according to the strictures of empiricism that Jesus is the truest thing possible for a human being, but I can testify to it and I do because my heart tells me that Jesus is believable, that Jesus is worth trusting, that Jesus is who he claims to be, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus will not fail me. Systems may break down, and other people may let me down, but Jesus is Lord, and Jesus has promised that he will never fail me nor forsake me, and I found that out for 45 years, that that's true. I can't prove that to you, but I can preach it and I can testify it. The only scripture I read on the communion, I read the Gospel of John over and over and over and over and over. Didn't have a Bible, had a Kindle, and I just read, I just read the Gospel of John repeatedly. And there's lots of themes in John. There's life, light, love, truth. Those are recurring themes. But the predominant theme that overshadows even light, life, love, truth is believe. Believe. It's in there 93 times. John, you can just see, John is just saying, come on, I want you to believe in Jesus. Believe in him. I'm, I'm writing to you what I know. I'm writing to you what I know about Jesus. I want you to believe. And then he just sums it up and says, these things are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Believe in Jesus and make that your long obedience in the same direction. Amen.
Stand up with me. Yeah, I've been working on that sermon for seven weeks. <laughs> and today we're going to baptize, I think about five people, if I got the number right. And I would like them, and I think you know, their children, their parents will come down here with them. But uh, those candidates for baptism, would you come right now? And as they come, would you give them some applause to, to let them know how happy you are for them, and you encourage them, and you bless this. Amen. You'll notice, you'll notice when we get them up there, And get them, get them baptized. That uh, we'll, we'll give them a change, and then but we give them we give them a t-shirt, a blue t-shirt, and it just says on there, "I believe." Man, I do. I believe. And uh, we're going to give you the confession of faith. Well, I say we. It was given. It's been given for two thousand years. It's called the Apostles' Creed, meaning credo, because the first line is is credo, which means I believe. I believe. And we're going to confess that all together. And then we're going to serve you communion. You'll get ready, and then I'll meet you up there, and we'll do the baptisms. But I want the whole church, along with these that are to be baptized, to join with me in confessing our long obedience in the same direction that is Christian faith. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.